Support has been provided by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma Incorporated. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, welcoming you to another Office of Education podcast. This one is in our series, the AUA Expert Exchange podcast, discussions about managing GU cancer. Specifically, today's podcast is on targeted, targeted therapies and integration with surgical management of renal cell carcinoma. It is my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Dr. Alexander Kudakov. Alex is the Roberta R. Schneller Chair in Urologic Oncology, as well as Professor and Chair in the Division of Urologic Oncology at Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Victor, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm just going to go over four learning objectives that we have for this podcast, and then we'll get right into things. Um, so the first is to describe new and emerging uh, targeted therapies for patients with locally advanced and advanced kidney cancer and the role of adjuvant therapy. Secondly, to review the mechanisms of action, efficacy, and safety of currently available targeted treatments for renal cell carcinoma. Third is to describe the key elements on how to integrate surgery, including timing and rationale with systemic targeted therapy in managing a patient with advanced kidney cancer. And finally, to facilitate discussions with patients and caregivers regarding uh, kidney cancer treatment options. So I guess we'll start pretty much with a, with a kidney cancer uh, overview. And Alex, I'll, I'll let you take it from here. Right. So the audience probably knows uh, that kidney cancer is, you know, one of the deadliest cancers that we, uh, that we treat as urologists. Um, it uh, affects, you know, over 70,000 uh, people in the United States every year. Some, more than 70,000 new cases uh, get diagnosed every year. And of those folks who get diagnosed, uh, some 20% are destined to pass from the disease, about 15,000 deaths every year. And just like a lot of the cancers that we treat as urologists, it really is uh, a big challenge to balance both overtreatment and undertreatment of these cancers. Um, just like uh, the narrative we have in prostate cancer, a lot of kidney tumors that are discovered are actually um, never destined to get uh, folks into trouble. And those patients are the patients that have an incidental small renal mass. We high five each other in the post anesthesia care unit that we uh, treated that tumor. And data show us that a lot of those tumors actually never needed treatment. Now, on the uh, other side of the spectrum are these falcon, these rapidly uh, progressive cancers that no matter what treatment we offer our patients, they are destined to cause a cancer-specific mortality and claim our patients' lives. I think this is what this 
podcast is really about, how do we um, mitigate the undertreatment uh, of those kind of tumors and what can we offer our patients in addition to the surgical options that we currently offer them? So for, um, for metastatic renal cell cancer, there have been some FDA approvals uh, since the first targeted therapy in, in 2005. Um, tell us where we stand with, with, that, with those. Right, it's, it's, really, uh, it's really the embarrassment of riches now. It's um, ever since sort of approval of the mTOR inhibitors uh, in the uh, mid and late 2000s uh, with you know, Tumsorolimus and Everolimus, we've had the, um, the, the targeted therapy agents uh, you know, through the, the GEF pathways with first being serafinib, then sunitinib, and then you know, pazofenib followed by axitinib, uh, cabazatinib, and most recently in 2016, lenvatinib. Um, those agents really um, disrupt the communication between the cancer cell and the endothelial cell and basically prevent the cancers from uh, uh, promoting angiogenesis or growth of blood vessels into the tumor and basically suffocating the tumor. And those agents are very effective in, in comparison, especially to cytotoxic therapy, which is uh, largely impotent against uh, renal cell carcinoma. These agents were sort of some of the first to be, uh, to be effective um, uh, for our patients with advanced kidney cancer and markedly prolonged uh, survival for those patients. I mean, median survival was at about 10 months of metastatic uh, renal cell carcinoma before advent of these agents. And now it has been prolonged by several years. Um, and most recently, um, you know, <clears throat> with nivolumab, the first uh, PD-1 inhibitor being approved in the renal cancer space in 2015, there's been uh, a slew of other agents, including immunotherapies uh, that have been approved. Uh, most recently, exitinib and pembrolizumab, which is a combination of a TKI and immunotherapy. And just before that, uh, a an immunotherapy combination of Ipinevo. Um, but, you know, going back, just to sort of reflect, the first immunotherapies were approved in the kidney cancer space back in 1992 with IL-2. Being approved and interferon, you know, interferon alpha being used even before that. We'll speak to that a little bit as we talk about cytoreductive nephrectomy. But yeah, I mean, there is just a, a slew of agents that are available for treatment of, uh, you know, advanced kidney cancer. And the big question is, can we take those agents and can we apply them in the localized kidney cancer space and uh, help our patients uh, not develop? Uh, advanced or systemic disease after uh, local res after resection of localized disease. And, and that nut hasn't been cracked yet. So, so let's talk a little bit about uh, adjuvant therapy for, for kidney cancer. I guess currently there's only one agent that's approved for that, and that's sunitinib. Um, where do we stand with uh, the development of some of these other agents for the, f instead of treating metastatic kidney cancer, how can we improve survival for those of our patients who have high-risk localized disease? Right, right. So the idea here is 
you know, we operate on folks and depending on the risk group that you look at, up to a third of patients with localized disease will develop metastasis on follow-up. And how do we mitigate that risk? How do we change our patients' destinies? How can we prevent that metastatic disease from occurring? And the, the first big trial that was done was the ASSURE trial, the ECOG E2805. And this is the largest VEGF-directed adjuvant trial. And so in this trial, patients with uh, T1B grade three or uh, higher uh, stage or, or grade, you know, higher stage disease, basically you had to have a, um, uh, at, at least a, a four centimeter mass that was grade three or, or larger um, uh, or, or higher stage, you know, if it was fully resected, you were uh, randomized to either sunitinib, serafinib, or placebo for a year. And the primary endpoints were disease-free survival and overall survival. And that trial basically showed us that five-year overall survival in the sunitinib arm was about 77%. In the serafinib arm was about the same and was about the same in placebo. There was absolutely no difference between these three arms. So despite patients taking this uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor for a year and uh, racking up uh, adverse events from these medications, they, uh, they um, leveraged zero benefit. And there's been a, an absolute graveyard of effort in this space. Um, following Assure, just about every other agent was, uh, that was available in the space was tested. Exitinib, pazopinib, serafinib alone, you know, um, there was, uh, you know, Everest uh, trial with Everolimus, and all those trials were negative. Basically, adjuvant therapy, giving somebody uh, systemic therapy after localized resection did not move the needle. The one exception was the S-TRAC trial. And the S-TRAC trial is uh, a trial where investigators here used, uh, you know, this was published in the New England Journal in 2016, the investigators here used a much higher risk group that basically only included uh, pathologic T3, T4 patients uh, or node positive patients who were then randomized to sunitinib versus placebo. And there you had a disease-free survival benefit compared to placebo. But, um, and disease-free survival benefit was, um, was 6.8 years versus 5.6 years. So basically what you did is you took sunitinib for a year uh, and your scans look cleaner for an additional year, okay? Uh, the overall survival benefit was not seen, okay? So, the, but however, FDA approved sunitinib for this indication. Now, it's, you know, it's a little bit controversial in the space wh whether sunitinib is, is used in this way. And I think this is very much institution dependent, but it's something that we definitely need to know about and definitely need to offer our patients. And the question really is, you know, is taking a drug for 12 months and being exposed to adverse events worth having 12 months of clean scans without an apparent overall survival impact. 
And that's a lot for a patient to chew on and swallow when making this kind of decision. But I think it's something that they need to understand and, and sort of be offered and you know, make a decision together with their provider about. Um, however, you know, a lot of, at least at centers like ours, we, we really try to enroll patients into clinical trials in that space. You know, if you resect a high-risk renal cell carcinoma, is there a trial that you can offer a patient? And we, you know, to answer your question, there are, you know, sort of ongoing efforts in this adjuvant therapy space. Now people are trying to see um, whether immunotherapy can move the needle. Um, the EMOTION trial was conducted, which is uh, a uh, tezolizumab, which is a, an anti pdl one inhibitor, um, was uh, patients were randomized to placebo versus atezo, and um, the primary endpoint was disease-free survival. And so that that um, that trial, uh, it, you know, has enrolled, and we're awaiting results. Now, what's a really interesting trial that's happening out there now is this idea of if you give an immunotherapy agent already after the lesion was resected, you may not actually um, you elicit a immune, an, an immune response because the tumor is gone. So in this PROSPER trial, which randomizes patients to the PD-1 inhib uh, inhibitor nivolumab, Patients actually get randomized to nivolumab uh, versus standard of care, uh, but nivolumab is given, a dose of it is given before nephrectomy. Um, and then the patient gets a nephrectomy and then they receive additional nivolumab. The challenge, you know, we, we have, personally we have this open, but the challenge is, is that you know, uh, this is this requires a biopsy beforehand. This requires for the nephrectomy to be done at your center, um, or at least you, you know, at least without any prior, without a prior, with you know, without a prior arrangement, it needs to be done at your center. But it, you know, it, it doesn't delay, but at least postpones the nephrectomy a few weeks. And sometimes it's very challenging to sort of convince patients that they need to have a biopsy and then get this. Uh, get this drug before they actually go on to have their kidney removal. I think the you know the argument that's that's made by the trial designers, and I think it's a very valid argument. That's the way the way they try to present it to patients that this tumor has been there for many years, most likely. Another few weeks is not going to matter, and it may make a difference in the ultimate outcome. Uh, but the idea here is to give the nivolumab while the tumor is still in to sort of prime the immune system to the antigens on this tumor before you actually remove it. I, I guess if you do that, there's a little bit of a risk of overtreatment because the tumor's not, I guess, fully staged. Um, how how toxic is that? Is it is it a single dose that's given before? Well, they they get a biopsy, and you know they get a biopsy. The uh, the eligibility they have to be, T, you know, clinical T two or greater. Or, or TNE or N1, okay? And so, um, and they get a biopsy and they have to have clear cell carcinoma. So, I mean, you're dealing with, these are, these are big masses. These are, these are sort of aggressive tumors. Um, and, you know, these are, these are patients that are sort of pre-selected for, uh, you know, being at very high risk for recurrence after kidney surgery. 
Um, so you do, you know, there, there is a, there is absolutely this risk of overtreatment if you didn't do the biopsy. That's why biopsy is so important. So you're not giving the volume out to somebody with a, you know, large oncocytoma or, you know, an, a poor, a lipid poor angiomyelitoma or, so, or something benign or, or, or something, you know, a type 2 papillary carcinoma that may not respond to immunothera immunotherapeutic as well as clear cell cancer. Um, but, uh, yeah, still, I mean, it's 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 the biopsy is a real is, is a barrier, but the trial is enrolling nicely. We'll have a we'll have a result. I mean, a very important trial to be done, and you know, kudos to investigators who are really pushing this forward. And the SEO CTC is really instrumental in, in having this trial uh, be successful. So I guess we have a ways to go uh, with adjuvant therapy, but hopefully with some of the newer agents and maybe biomarkers in the future that can help us select patients will make some headway in that area and can have as, uh, uh, as much of a breakthrough as we've had in the metastatic space. That would sure be nice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, how about neoadjuvant therapy? What, uh, when, why, and how good is it? Right. So this is a much, uh, much more, uh, much much less uh, less well studied space. Uh, it's but there has been um, there's been some work here. So one idea is in these patients that come in, for instance, with a solitary uh, with a solitary uh, kidney with a very large mass, where there's an absolute indication for partial nephrectomy, um, or a patient with a large mass with very marginal <coughs> renal function for whom nephrectomy is not possible. Um, can you make something that's quote unquote non-partialable partialable? And um, a study was led by investigators from the Cleveland Clinic, led by uh, Brian Reaney a few years ago, looked at pizopinib, which is one of the uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and showed that there is a signal that you can shrink some of these tumors and at least uh, make partial nephrectomy more palatable. And then there was a study from MD Anderson with exitinib for sort of potentiating local, locally advanced diseases resection. But what's most interesting, I think, is these data that are coming out from these, uh, from these uh, metastatic trials. And so, for instance, there's a trial called Javelin Renal 101. This was presented at ESMO last year, where, you know, this was a trial that randomized alvelumab um, and exitinib. So this combination TKI immunotherapy against the TKI sunitinib, okay? And what they want in this group, about 20% of patients in this trial actually never had a cytoreductive nephrectomy. They still had their kidney tumor in situ. And what was very interesting is that the investigators reported what happened to this primary tumor when patients got systemic therapy. Uh, and in this combination um, immunotherapy TKI arm, 91%, 91% of tumors had showed some sort of shrinkage, okay? Whereas 35% of tumors, and that's, a, that's actually a, a, a large proportion, um, showed greater than 30% of lesion shrinkage, which is really a response by resist criteria. So, 35%, where if you look at sunitinib, only 10% of tumors had greater than 30% of shrinkage. And the shrinkage from the TKI-IO com uh, combination was much faster. 
the median time was about four and a half months, whereas uh, in the sunitinib arm, arm, it was over seven months. So although that data is really not truly neoadjuvant data, that data, I think, is quite interesting to be applied to in the right setting for those patients for whom you're considering um, you know, sort of new adjuvant therapy in these rare instances where you think giving some systemic therapy is really going to be, um, uh, a, uh, you know, it will make a difference in the quality and in, in, in really the ability, your ability to resect a localized tumor. So something to think about. And uh, that, that manuscript hasn't come out, but the abstract has. And I think the manuscript is just around the corner. So another thing I, I wanted to talk about was uh, cytoreductive nephrectomy. Now in the GU system, I guess the kidney is, well, certainly the first and I think only uh, um, cancer where, you know, I guess dating back to the, the uh, IL-2 days and the interferon days where we considered cytoreductive uh, nephrectomy. So what's the role of cytoreductive nephrectomy today? Right. So, you know, this, this, is, a, this is a space that really rapidly changed uh, just, you know, just a couple of years ago with their publication of the Seminole Carmina trial. And, you know, to, to sort of put it into context, um, Cytoreductive nephrectomy was really shown to have a benefit in the early immunotherapy era when interferon alpha uh, reigned. And what, you know, those trials showed that there was a modest uh, survival advantage to giving uh, immunotherapy, uh, to, give, to, uh, to having the patient undergo a nephrectomy um, when they received interferon alpha. So we know from those data that cytoreductive nephrectomy is really associated with a survival advantage only when systemic therapy is given, okay? And what we do know from, you know, from many series in the literature is that not all patients, when they get cytoreductive nephrectomy, actually receive systemic therapy. And that can be for a number of reasons. Um, for instance, the biggest, the, the big fear of, you know, kidney surgeons in this, uh, you know, in the cytoreductive nephrectomy era was to have these rapid progressors. And there were, you know, about a, uh, you know, about a third of patients who didn't receive systemic therapy with these rapid progressors. You basically took out their kidney and they progressed so rapidly that, um, or, or, you know, that, that they just never made it to systemic therapy. They never made it past the Kind of the cytoreductive nephrectomy assault. Um, and, but what we also know on the flip side is that not all patients who get a cytoreductive nephrectomy actually need systemic therapy. And there is, you know, really um, nice, um, uh, nice data that was published in 2016 in Lancet Oncology by Brian Reaney and, you know, Betsy Plumack, who's from, uh, from Fox Chase. It was a phase two trial that enrolled you know, about 50 metastatic patients who had oligometastatic metastases, who had um, you know, sort of just, um, just you know, metastatic disease, but it was, uh, it was very low volume. 
And what they showed that median length of active surveillance of sort of foregoing systemic therapy after having their kidney removed was about 15 months. For, for a median of 15 months, these patients did not require systemic therapy. So not all patients require systemic therapy. So, you know, the, the challenge with cytoreductive, the cytoreductive nephrectomy is just like all challenges in medicine is, you know, to do no harm. And that's where, in my opinion, cytoreductive nephrectomy stands today. What Carmina, what the Carmina trial showed us is that if you select patients poorly, if you have patients who have, you know, in the Carmina trial where they randomized patients to cytoreductive nephrectomy with sunitinib versus sunitinib alone, you had a lot of patients with poor risk disease. About 43% of patients were poor risk disease. And those, and cytoreductive nephrectomy harmed those patients, okay? So, in today's practice, most kidney surgeons who offer patients cytoreductive nephrectomy only offer it when there is oligometastatic disease where you think that if you took out this kidney, this patient would not need systemic therapy immediately, okay? Because there are those patients that can forego systemic therapy and be watched. Now, if the patient needs systemic therapy urgently, there's absolutely no role for cytoreductive nephrectomy because it will only delay the, the therapy that's gonna help the patient the most. And if you're unsure, you probably shouldn't offer cytoreductive nephrectomy because there's very little downside to giving these patients very powerful and, and what now are very effective systemic therapy agents before their kidney is removed. Now, this space is, is gonna to continue to develop their trial that are basically trying to understand when and how and with what sequencing is cytoreductive nephrectomy appropriate. But again, there, um, there needs to be caution when offering this procedure, uh, you know, the surgery to, to patients with systemic disease, because you do not want to lock them out of the systemic therapy that's most likely to help them. So Alex, there's, you know, th this is obviously a, a complex area with a lot for patients to understand, how do you how do you go about patient counseling, and what are the key things that um, urologists and oncologists need to tell tell our patients with kidney cancer? Yeah, I mean it's it's you know it's the art of medicine, it's just like in any space in medicine, it's it it requires uh, crisp communication and requires. Um, uh, a, a real partnership with the patient. And as we all know, different patients have very different preferences and very different outlooks on life and very different risk tolerances. Um, I mean, for instance, you know, you, you know, data support this. I mean, there, there've been, you know, reports of, you know, when patients are asked, you know, if you take a drug for a year following surgery, you know, to, what, you know, would you take it if, and you know some patients, some patients won't even care if it prolongs their survival. They would only take adjuvant therapy if there was no toxicity. That's sometimes really a priority for folks. And some patients would tolerate any toxicity if they think it would improve their survival. And everybody is just a bit different. And uh, I think, you know, what I what I at least in my practice like to communicate is that some of these decisions, there's a lot of uncertainty about them, and there's a lot of personal preference. I tell my patients, they're really the captain of, of the ship. And, I, you know, I'm here to work with them to make the best decision for them uh, and really try to understand what's, what's important to them and, uh, 
what risks they absolutely want to avoid. And uh, uh, I, I think that's, again, it's kind of the art of medicine. And uh, it's, it's, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, it's not cookie cutter. I mean, it really, it, it, you have to t take it to each patient uh, and see um, how they, they respond to the choices and, and, and really what they, uh, what they prefer. What I think is important is to give them time to chew on it, to not sort of hold them to a decision right there in the office when they're just trying to digest it, to, to really speak to their family members um, uh, and to help them come up with a decision. But having said that, it has to be really the patient's decision because sometimes the patient's children, the patient's spouse want one thing, but in the, in the end, the patient wants something very different. Um, well, Alex, that was really a great review on the topic. Uh, any closing remarks that you have for our audience or anything that we that we left out that you wanted to say? No, I mean, I think it's, you know, there there are some important clinical trials that are that are in the space. I really would encourage uh, folks that once, you know, things get a little bit complicated, um, you know, to refer them to uh, practices that have uh, trials that are open because only by enrolling our patients into clinical trials are we going to push this, uh, this field forward. Well, that's great. Uh, Alexander Kudikoff, um, Chair of the Division of Urologic Oncology at the Fox Chase, Can Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. Uh, we thank you so much for your time and uh, the information that you've provided. I would also like to thank our audience for listening. And as always, if you would like more information, please visit us at auanet.org slash university.